0: Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. I am a happy Mother's Day. I'm just so honored to be here, and I'm, I'm really grateful to have been invited by Scott and by the elders to be able to share the message on this Mother's Day. Before I get started, though, I, I want to give a, just a little brief commercial about a class that is coming up on the 21st and the 28th of May. At the 11 o'clock service over in C214, I'll be teaching a two-part seminar on how to prepare a Bible lesson. And so it's a way to study the Bible for yourself or if you wanted to have a devotional or a lesson to teach to somebody else. So it it gives you another skill for your tool belt for that. And you do need to register online. We are not offering an online option, but you do need to register for the class so that we have the materials prepared for you but it would be lovely to see you there. Okay, if you do not have a Bible, uh, put up your hand, and I believe we have ushers coming down to hand those out, thank you. Um, Looking back on where we've been in the sermon series, we've been studying the life of David, and back in January we began the series not with the life of David himself, but with the story of a mother in scripture, with the story of Hannah. Well, we are almost at the end of David's life in this series, and we're closing it off, not entirely today. There will be one more more sermon next week, but we're, we're getting down. We're closing it off with the story of another mother. There's another mother in Scripture who comes to the foreground. So we are going to look at her today. We are going to revisit Bathsheba. When you hear the name Bathsheba, the names David and Bathsheba always go together. Her name is nearly always linked with shame and failure, and if you think of that for yourself, that'd be so disappointing. She's like a secondary character in a book, and she receded into the background after the story that Pat preached on, but now it, we're looking about 20 years later, and she comes back to this stage. And I find that when I look at her life, she has a lot to teach me. So I'd like to pray, and then we will look at the life of Bathsheba. Heavenly Father, this is your word that we're opening, and we are so, so grateful that you did preserve the scripture and you put it into our hands so that we have your words to us. Father, every time we open it up, you have something for us, and so as we do this today, we do it with anticipation, and we do it with eagerness to hear what it is that you have to teach, to hear what it is you have to say and the things you want us to take from your word and live by them from this day forward so father i ask for myself that you guard me from error and that you help me to teach your word with accuracy with truth and to your glory in jesus name amen okay we're going to be opening up our bibles to first kings chapter 1 as we're looking at this you know david has been going through one crisis after another, and this is his last one. So we're, we're coming into that. We'll be talking about that this morning. But I'd like to read just the first five verses of First Kings chapter 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, "'Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king, and be in his service.'" Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king and he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Okay, we're talking about Bathsheba, so who's Abishag? Um, and that is kind of a weird uh, little bit of a story to be put in scripture. It just seems, okay, That's that, is, that just seems like a strange thing to be having as part of the narrative. But believe me, it wouldn't be there if it wasn't important and if it didn't have significance. And, I am a nurse, <laughs> so I just have to say, I have to throw this out there: three thousand years ago, this business of having a, a a vibrant, healthy person cuddle up next to a patient who was who was cold and they were having a hard time staying warm, that was documented, legitimate medical practice. That's the way it was done. I mean, in Israel it even snows and there are times when it gets super cold and they did not have central heating. You couldn't go warm up a warm pack in the microwave. So that this was how they cared for one another. So um, Abishag was found, was sought to, so that she could be David's caregiver because he's old and he's having a hard time staying warm. And she didn't just keep him warm, she was a servant to him. She was given the honor of permanent status. She remained in the household as a member of the family after David had died. It's made clear in scripture that they were not intimate, but she was given the per- position and rank of concubine. It doesn't call it out in scripture right here, but it becomes very clear later. In Hebrew culture, a concubine, unlike in other, some other cultures, was not just a legally sanctioned mistress. She was a, a wife. She had the rank of being a wife, but a secondary rank, a secondary wife. So she had a, a position that was secure just as if she was a, 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 a real wife, you know, I don't know, a real wife and a secondary wife. But anyway, um, she had a lesser rank, but she, her position in the home was just as um, secure. And so she was guaranteed to be provided for. So this is going to become significant as we go later in Bathsheba's story. And then we have this other thing, and I only read the introductory part, and it is Adonijah's story. David had 20 sons, and um, Adonijah at this point is the eldest. There were three others older than him, but all of them have died for different, for through different reasons. And Adonijah, being the eldest, decided to exalt himself as king. David's old. He's frail. He figures, this is my moment. I'm going to take over, and I'm going to be the next king. And he rounds up some of the people from surprisingly, that had been leaders in David's army and in David's kingdom. So he has David's the commander and the high priest and a bunch of other people, and he is putting together his forces, and then he declares himself as king. And he has a huge party. He celebrates for days, sacrificing all kinds of animals and and having this big, huge party to celebrate that he is taking over as king. He very significantly did not invite certain other people. And so there's this division that's happening. That there's, He's forming the house of Adonijah, and then we have the house of David. And he did not invite Nathan the prophet that we have heard of before. He did not invite Solomon although he invited others of his brothers, but Solomon was the one who had been identified as the next king. So he didn't invite him, and he didn't invite any of the other mighty men or or those people. So he's doing this without David's knowledge and in opposition to God's revealed will. So he's planning an overthrow. This is not a peaceful succession. And Nathan the prophet comes to the palace and seeks out Bathsheba. He comes to her and he he wants to talk to her about this this is then nathan said to bathsheba the mother and we're going to get to that but i wanted to first go back before we get too far into what bathsheba doing now i'd like to go back and take a look at who she is who where she came from where did we get her so we're going to look at bathsheba's backstory Who was she? Where did she come from? Well, her father was a man named Eliam. Eliam was one of David's 30 mighty men. And so he was a warrior. Her grandfather was a man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel had been a very close advisor of David. And there's a scripture, 2 Samuel 16, 23, that says, Now in those days, advice from Ahithophel was like an oracle from God. He was the smartest man in the country. It seems like wisdom became a family trait. Anyway, she was from an honored and important family, and she did get married. She became the widow of Uriah. Uriah was another of David's 30 mighty men, so she was the wife of a, of a warrior as well. Then after the death of her husband Uriah, she became the wife of David. And, and then Bathsheba kind of recedes into the background but not until a very important statement from God. At the close of the story of, of David and Bathsheba, it says, David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went in to her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he, that's David, called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. The name Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord or beloved of God. And when you read that verse, understand that there's maybe one to three years that are all telescoped together in that tiny passage. We said, it says that she was comforted by David. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. And I'd like you to think back on the profound repentance that David demonstrated after he was confronted with his sin and he confessed his sin before the lord jeff reed stood up here and quoted psalm 51 and it's also a a song it was real popular in the 70s so you may know a lot of the words by heart if you're familiar with that song cuz it's created me a clean heart o lord my god and renew a right spirit within me restore to me the joy of my salvation Take not your Holy Spirit from me. All of those words show that David was so repentant and he wanted his relationship with the Lord to be right and to be healed, to be reconciled and repaired. There are many Psalms written by David that express the comfort that comes only through God. And that was the only comfort that David had to offer to Bathsheba. Don't just picture him giving her a hug and the pat on the back and that that's going to make it all better for the death of her husband and the loss of her child. He took his repentance not just to God, but also to Bathsheba. Through David, Bathsheba was comforted by God. And there's a principle at play, which is explained by the Apostle Paul. Second Corinthians, chapter one, verses three and four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we've been comforted. Lots of comfort, lots of comfort in that verse. But it reminds us that repentance and reconciliation begin any spiritual relationship with God and the comfort we get from Him, that restoration that we get from Him, then spills over and extends into the relationships of those within our sphere of influence. Repentance is the gateway to redemption. It is how we begin our relationship with God. And everything from this point forward in the story of David and Bathsheba suggests a respectful, loving relationship between those two, between this husband and wife. So I just really want to emphasize that repentance makes redemption of relationships possible. Repentance makes redemption of relationships possible. Bathsheba's story very much is one of redemption and of comfort. There was also, I think there was wonderful comfort in that God did fill her empty arms, that she was blessed to have Solomon, and not just Solomon. She had three more little boys so that she raised while she was living in the palace. But after that verse in 2 Samuel 12, she's off the radar and off the record until Nathan comes to inform her of Adonijah's treachery. And this is the same Nathan This is the same Nathan from the story of David and Bathsheba. He was still David's trusted advisor with access to David. And I think it is very important that David valued the man who had confronted him with his sin and had kept that man speaking into his life. And I think that's a principle that we can carry with us is that a person who cares enough and is brave enough to speak truth and to confront you with the truth is a person that you can trust. It's not a person that you want to put, get angry and push away. That's a person you want to keep close. You want to trust them. So after Nathan comes to see her, we're in, uh, still in chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. And we're looking at Bathsheba now as the queen. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our lord, does not know it? Now, therefore, come, let me give you some advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, did you not, my lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on the throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then, while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. And so Bathsheba goes into the king. She goes. She, Bathsheba went into the king and into his chamber, and you know the, he's really old, and Abishag is there waiting on, on him. And what we see, so what do we see when we, when, with this first verse? We see that Bathsheba had proximity. She had immediate access to David. And that is what lets us know that she, of all of his wives, she was the one that was put in the position of queen. The rest of them are not ma- mentioned, and they are not at his side. But she was positioned as the queen with proximity to him and influence. She went, she did go in to David. She immediately went in, she bowed beside his couch and honored him. And she then spoke the situation truly and described it to him, exactly as Nathan had described it to her. And she lined this up against the known word of God, a word of God that she had received personally from David and that the nation had received. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 5, is a record of a proclamation that David made to the nation. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He has said to me, your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. So when Bathsheba went and was beside David's bed and was telling him the story of, I mean, the truth about Adonijah and what he was up to, she advocated for the word of God. And she also advocated for the life and future of her son, Solomon. Picture Solomon as a high school kid at this point. He's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 years old. We, we get that by, um, by math. Uh, <laughs> David was 50 years old when he and Bathsheba had their first encounter. He dies when he's 70. We don't know how long they were married before Solomon was born, and David's not dead yet. So David's not yet 20 years old. He's, he's somewhere under there. So I'm, I'm going to guess somewhere around 17. Nathan comes in, and he gives confirmation. He also comes into David's room, so we know he has easy, ready access, that he is an advisor who is welcome. He also bows, comes beside David, and he explains the same thing with a few more details. He is a prophet of God, and I don't want you to get the idea that these two were in collusion, that they were somehow manipulatively collaborating to get David to do what they wanted him to do. I want you to think just for a second ahead to the trial of Jesus Christ and the, the hoops the Sanhedrin were going through, trying to find two witnesses who could agree on an accusation against Jesus. It's because this was correct procedure. For a severe accusation of a, of a big crime, you had to have two voices, and they had to agree. So What Nathan had come to tell Bathsheba was easily verifiable, and she fully trusted the word that he gave. So she is bringing the first word, and Nathan is bringing the confirming word that, yes, your son Adonijah is committing treason and is getting ready to stage a civil war in this country. So after this is done and they have both explained things to David he said and so you picture it she's she's been there she's spoken her part then she steps away while Nathan is there and he says now call Bathsheba back to me call call Bathsheba to come back back up here. And this is where we really see their relationship because I want you to know that as a king, David had absolutely no obligation at that point to include Bathsheba in any of his plans. He could have just given orders and moved on and not said anything, but he didn't do that. He called her back and he very personally reassured her that God's will and his will were still in agreement and that her son is going to be protected even to the point he's going to be put on the throne today. And then he makes it so. They go and they get Solomon. They put him on the royal steed. They dress him in royal robes. They parade him through the town with trumpets and announcements. He is anointed by the spring of Gihon he's brought back he's crowned he's put on the throne and there is the city goes crazy there is a huge celebration with lots of noise and shouting and music and trumpets and there are sacrifices and Solomon is confirmed as the king and Bathsheba has been used by God to confirm her own son on the throne of Israel so what about Adonijah you know, what happened? What, okay, so his party is kind of starting to wind down. And he hears all this noise. He hears all the racket from the town. And a, a young guy named Jonathan comes hopping into the house. And he says, hey, Jonathan, you got good news? No, Solomon has just been crowned king. He's on the throne. He's confirmed. And all of Adonijah's guests, they just sort of got up and went home. They all just, it says that they all just got up from the table and they left. And this guy, he runs to the tabernacle and grabs hold of the horns of the altar. Grabbing hold of the horns of the altar, that was also a thing. If a person was accused of murder, but they were claiming that they were innocent, they could grab hold of the horn, horns of the altar and plead for clemency until everything was sorted out. So Adonijah was guilty, but he wasn't yet guilty of murder. He hadn't killed anybody yet. So he grabbed hold of the thorns of the uh, of the horns of the altar, and um, what he was guilty of was that he had exalted his will over the revealed will of God. And very simply put, that is sin. That's all sin. I exalt my will over God's will. Usually, almost always, God's very, very clearly revealed will, and and that's when I sin. So sin is very common to man. But most sin in this lifetime is not a capital crime. (laughs) So he was given clemency, and Solomon said in verse 52, if he is found worthy, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. If he is found worthless, then he dies. So he was he was given an opportunity to prove himself trustworthy. So peace is restored, civil war war is averted, and everybody's living happily ever after, right? Okay. Until David dies, <laughs> okay. So we're going to turn the page. Look at First Kings chapter two, um, and we'll, we won't be starting until verse. 13. But David does die. It's been a few years. Solomon's kingdom is firmly established as his own. And Tyler gave a a portion of the counsel that David had given to Solomon. There was a period of years there where they were co-regents. This happened several times in the history of Israel where the outgoing king would have his son on the throne and they would kind of rule together and there was this careful handoff from one leader to the next leader with a minimum of disruption to the country. Kind of like when Ken Long left and he (laughs) went and we knew Scott was going to be next and so it was a good transition. Anyway, so we are now in um, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 13. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Do you come peacefully? And he said, Peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, Speak. He said, You know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers, for it was his from the Lord. Now, I have one request to make of you, do not refuse me. She said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for, speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he's my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar, that was the high priest, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah, that was the commander of the army. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me and more if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. And he made it so. Um, so we're back to Abishag, and uh, to just to be clear on where this is all going, to take the wife of a king was equivalent to claiming his throne. It was a way of saying that everything that was that belonged to the previous king is now under the jurisdiction and ownership of the new king. When. Nathan came to confront David with his sin. He he made that statement, I gave you the wives of Saul. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that David interacted with them, but it was a way of saying everything that was Saul's, I gave to you. When one of David's other sons who died, um, Absalom, tried to take over the kingdom, he publicly took many of David's concubines and violated them Were publicly, so that he could say, David's done, and I'm ruling now. That was a way of him demonstrating his overthrow of David. When David died, Abishag legally became the wife of Solomon. And it says over and over and over again that she was a Shunammite. Does that sound familiar? Is there any other Shunammite you can think of in Scripture? This is what they this is how they refer to the bride in the in the book called the Song of Songs she the bride is a Shunammite I've, I've, this, this jumped out at me and so I went looking to see is this the same Shunammite is the woman in Song of Songs the same the same one and there's no way of proving it but scholars do think that's probably how it went because imagine you've got this gorgeous maybe 15, 16, 17-year-old caregiver for David, and you've got maybe 16, 17, 18-year-old Solomon who is like, oh my goodness, she's his concubine. She's gonna be my wife, okay, living in the same palace. I think it's, I like it. Okay, (laughs) but we can't prove it. But the main thing is that this whole thing with Adonijah, this is not innocent, this is him posturing so that he can set the stage for a coup attempt. He is claiming that he still has a right to the throne. So when you read this, do you get the impression that Bathsheba was fooled by him because We really need to not look at this through Western lenses. We have to view it through the culture of the time. And remember what we've already learned about here. She knew her way around the palace, and she knew her way around the politics, and she was a woman of Israel. She knew her way around the, the law and the culture. Adonijah showed his intentions when he came to talk to her. You know the kingdom was mine, and all Israel expected me to be king. So that shows where his heart is. And the first words out of her mouth are, do you come in peace? She knows he's not trustworthy. And she had said as much to King David when she was saying that her life would be forfeit if she, if he had become the king. This is written in a way that so we as the reader get the same impact of the request that Solomon would have gotten. It's supposed to jar us a little bit. It's supposed to seem, wait a minute, that's just not right. There's something wrong there. So she goes in to Solomon and for all practical purposes, she just drops Adonijah's request verbatim and lets it fall. And it does fall, falls hard. Adonijah's earlier reprieve was conditional. Verse 52, remember, if he's worthy, he lives. If he's found wicked, he dies. So don't misread this and think that that Bathsheba was somehow gullible. The one who was the fool here was Adonijah, and um, he underestimated his stepmother and apparently his younger half-brother who was the king, and he died of stupidity. (laughs) Okay, so she was a wise and discerning woman and she knew her son and he knew her so we're going to start looking at bathsheba as the queen mother and again we find that she had proximity that she was freely she had free access to go to solomon and that she went in to him and, and because of their relationship, the relationship they shared, it says that he bowed to her and he, had, he said, hey guys, bring a seat and put it here beside my throne. And in all of the other translations that I looked at, it doesn't say he had a chair put beside her or a seat. It was he had a throne placed on the right side of his throne for his mother. And he invited her to sit beside him and to say what was on her mind. She had proximity and she also had influence. Solomon was the most powerful man in the nation and he was renowned for his wisdom, but he continued to be open to the input of his mother. The, the term, there is a, a Hebrew word, Gabira, which actually means queen mother. And so she was a great lady, a, a woman of influence within the kingdom. Not ruling, but at the side of the ruler. There's a poem that I, I don't have the whole thing for you, but the person who, last name of the person who wrote it is Wallace, and there's a repeated refrain after each stanza It says, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And it echoes a sentiment that is probably the most, one of the most quoted verses about parenting in scripture. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. Who wrote that? Solomon, (laughs) who was he talking about? Bathsheba. (laughs) So what else did he say about his mom? Proverbs 1.8 says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Good advice. But I think my favorite place where he where we hear Solomon's heart for his mother, is in Proverbs 31. Now I do need to give a little bit of a disclaimer here because if you, whenever you look at Proverbs 31, it says it was written by King Lemuel. If, at the very beginning, the introduction to the book of Proverbs says that it was written by Solomon. And there are a lot of places in Scripture where a person has more than one name, and three thousand years of Jewish tradition consider that Lemuel, which also means beloved of God, whereas Jedediah means beloved of the Lord, that it, this was a pseudonym for Solomon, and that this this was actually written by him under a under one of his different names. So I'm going with it, and um, so we have in the first nine verses of Proverbs 31, it has a separate title. And the title of it is called An Oracle His Mother Taught Him. If that is true, then through the pen of Solomon, Bathsheba speaks to us today. And this oracle, it's a little short short thing. It's a piece of advice to a young man, a youth, in the palace who is going to one day be the king. I mean, everything with Proverbs 31 just fits really well with the Solomon story. The last ten, uh, verses, 10 through 31, are considered to be a tribute, maybe not a eulogy, but a tribute from Solomon about his mother. And it's that lovely poem about a virtuous woman who fears the Lord. Instead of reading all of it, I'll just give you the last few verses. It's in um, 31 29 to 31 many women have done excellently but you surpass them all charm is deceitful and beauty is vain but a woman who fears the lord is to be praised give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates i think that's just the best mother's day card ever written <laughs> so proverbs 31 illustrates for me the the reality of redemption now how do you think about bathsheba And this is a valid question because we remember Paul as an apostle and for writing most of the New Testament. We don't immediately recall his persecution of the church and his days of murder. We remember King David as a man after God's own heart and, of course, for taking out Goliath. But we don't immediately recall his adultery and murder. We should remember Bathsheba as a queen, a queen mother, and as one of the women in the genealogy of Jesus. We shouldn't merely remember her affair with David. So for next steps, what does she teach us? What is her example for us? And I will get, get to some real uh, pre- key principles to hold on to, but I think it's, it is important that her influence didn't end in childhood. She was available to advise and to protect Solomon and defend him for her entire life. Not controlling, not holding the reins, but she was there as a respected resource. I think so commonly motherhood stories get confined to those years of um, you know, babies, toddlers, carpools, wet towels on the floor, the intense years when they're really living in our own house and we are speaking into their lives as teachers and leaders. But Bathsheba is an example of how the relationship between a, a parent and a child continues all the way through adulthood, that there's a uniqueness to that relationship. She was an advocate for him when he was like maybe 17 to 20, somewhere in that teen year, and she went before the king on his behalf. And when she went before the king, she went with, armed with love, with reverence, and with the word of God. So here's the first of your next steps. I advocate for my family by going directly before the king. Jesus is my king. I advocate for my family by going directly before the king. I have free access. I have proximity to the king. A a mentor of mine when my kids were in high school (laughs) told me, as long as they are living with you, talk to them about God. As soon as they move out, talk to God about them. (laughs) So Bathsheba was invited to sit beside Solomon and to speak. She offered input but the outcome wasn't hers to control. Now we have raised three kids from infancy and um, then we have a fourth that that we call her our aftermarket daughter that we got when she was 20. And I, I want to just throw in a, a little word about that too, because there is no limit on the number of spiritual children you can have, and I think every child needs many spiritual parents. We each get a, a, a matched set of one of two biological parents. That's how it's done, but but we need others speaking into our lives. Children need other spiritual parents bringing the wisdom of God into their lives and we have that to give as adults we that we can have other children that are spiritually ours but anyway with all of our adult children whether they were homemade or acquired by faith the next step is our input and help is now by invitation or after obtaining their permission our input is by invitation or after obtaining their permission. We can offer but not impose our opinions, our instructions, and our interference on them. My kids are quick to firmly but lovingly let me know when I have crossed that line and when I need to back off. But I'm just so full of experience and wisdom, don't you just want me to make it easy and tell you what to do? But I'll tell you, my loving input can quickly morph into just plain butting in. So I am learning to preface my input, my suggestions with a question. Would you like my input? Are you asking for my advice? And remember that no means no. And Bathsheba got out of the way. She did what she was invited to do and then she stood aside while Solomon did what he needed to do as the king. And that is a hard thing to do with adult parenting, to know when not to step in and help, when to let them sort it out with God and and to let him completely speak into their lives. I have on rare occasion had to actually say no when they've asked for my help, um, to decline help, or what's even harder is to just stay quiet. There was definitely mutual respect that was modeled by Bathsheba and Solomon. She sat at his side because as adult and child it's a more even relationship. Solomon bowed to her, yet she regarded him as her king, and he was the one who was on the real throne. So they're parent and child. There are new roles that are defined now. She's no longer the leader and teacher. Our kids are gaining life experience, and we can draw and learn from them. I view them now as the adults that they are, not as the children they once were. So we have our three that were born in our home, Eric, Sean, and Lauren, and I was going to go in now and just launch into a whole bunch, you know, pictures on the screen and telling you everything about each one of them and their character. I will spare you that, but I will just say that each one of them, including our, our daughter Callie, who we got later, all four of them gave insight to me to be used in this message. They all spoke into this. There is a time, you know, our roles have shifted, and there is a time coming when our roles will probably shift again. And there may be a need for us to submit entirely to their wisdom and leadership. Hopefully we have trained them well. The last step is that looking at the whole of Bathsheba's life and laying it alongside the way I now see my children, whether they are my own or acquired through faith, The next step is that I live my life and I view theirs in context of present redemption, not past failure. I live my life and I view theirs in context of my present redemption, not past failure. Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray.